I think it's fair to say that we as humans, we want to be able to trust each other. We like it when people keep their word. There's something idyllic about a world in which a handshake is as good as a signature. And some research suggests that that expectation, that hope, it starts out for humans at an early age, that young children have a high expectation that others are going to follow through with what they say, that they're going to keep their promises. And yet we all know that at some point we grew up and we understood that people don't always keep their word, that there's potential to be let down. And when promises are broken, we feel wronged. And so we've grown to value honesty, loyalty, and trustworthiness in people because we know that not everyone embodies these characteristics. It's why we have binding contracts in business. It's why we have the pinky swear on the playground. Because sometimes we're just skeptical that people are actually going to hold up their end of the bargain. And so we want recourse if they don't. And in our passage this morning, in Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to see that there is one person that we can always trust to come through on his word. God's promises are a sure thing. They are guaranteed. So grab your Bibles and flip with me to Hebrews chapter 6, and then also stick your finger in in Genesis, in particular chapter 22, because we're going to flip back and forth between these a little bit. So, so far up to this point in the book of Hebrews, we've kind of seen that the author is, is trying to accomplish a couple of things. First, he's trying to remind his audience that Jesus is better. He's elevating him as superior. Um, but he's also providing like significant warnings and encouragement, admonishment to uh, the audience, um, encouraging them to stick with Jesus, to not drift away. And we've seen this in a number of passages that we've covered so far. Now, towards the end of chapter 4, the author began his explanation that Jesus is our high priest, that he is better than any earthly priest. And he introduces that thought, but but shortly thereafter, he kind of puts that theme on hold for a couple chapters, and he gives his audience yet another warning. And this was the one that Darcy spoke about last week, this encouragement to move towards maturity. And so the author is taking this break from his main point, Um, about Jesus being a priest uh, and and being our high priest, and he has some pretty tough words for his audience. He exposes the danger of spiritual immaturity and apostasy. And after these tough words of warning, he actually finishes chapter 6 by giving a word of encouragement and hope to bring this whole kind of intermission to a close, and that's where we pick up. So if you look in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9, Just after he's warned them about these dangers of rejecting Christ and walking away from the faith, he writes these words. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. And we desire, this is verse 11, and we desire each each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author is concluding this section of warning here by saying, stay faithful, be patient, hold on to the promises of God. And then he takes the next seven verses or so, the ones that we're focusing on this morning, verses 13 to 20, to explain that God's promises are guaranteed. They are a sure thing. And if you haven't noticed already, often in Hebrews, to make his point, the author consistently relies on stories, on prophecy, on poetry from the Old Testament. He relies on this deep tradition uh, in Jewish scripture and kind of assumes that his audience is going to know what he's talking about, what he's alluding to. 
And that's why, like, even though it's not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the book, the assumption has always been that the original recipients of this letter are Jewish Christians, hence the name, the letter to the Hebrews. And our passage this morning is no exception to that practice. I mean, this time he makes reference to Abraham as one who, through patience and faith, inherited the promises of God. He uses him as kind of an archetype um, for us to follow. And in verse 12, which we just read, the author calls his readers again to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises, like Abraham. He goes on in verses 13 to 15, which read like this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the story of Abraham is no doubt familiar to the audience, especially if they're Jewish Christians. And it's even uh, pretty familiar to us. Um, we've, we've heard a lot about Abraham, probably in Sunday school and growing up in the church, or if we've been in the church for any length of time. We encounter the story of Abraham's life in, in Genesis chapters 12 through 24. But his legacy, we know, extends far beyond that. He is the recipient of what is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. At least that's the theological or the, the technical term for it. It's this promise that uh, God is going to bless Abraham, that he is going to make his name great. He's going to do something big through him and through his descendants. He's going to give him this huge line of descendants, a family that's going to be massive, and that the whole world is going to benefit from it. Through Abraham, God says he will bless all the nations of the earth. And we see this promise for the first time in Genesis chapter 12. He calls Abram uh, at the age of 75 to follow, his, to follow him in faith, just to leave his country and go to the place that the Lord will show him. And then he says uh, the words of the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, like this, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this promise, this covenant, is stated, it's restated in various forms throughout Abraham's life. I mean, we read it again in chapters 13 and 15 of Genesis, um, and those are the, the famous passages where God first says, like, do you see the dust of the earth? Do you see the stars in the, in the sky? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as these things. But at this point, he's, he has no child. And it's not until Genesis 21, when Abraham is 100 years old, 25 years after God first made the promise to him, that Sarah gives birth to Isaac. It's, he's the one through whom God will fulfill his promise to Abraham. But he didn't come until 25 years after the first giving of the promise. But after all this time, God had come through, and he'd given Sarah and Abraham this child, Isaac. But then in Genesis 22 we have what I consider to be one of the most shocking uh, stories in the Old Testament. It's the story where God calls Abraham to give up Isaac, this promised child that all Abraham's hope and expectation is, is wrapped up in. And yet God is, is asking him literally to put him on the altar, to let go. The whole thing is, is hard for us to, to wrap our minds around. Like, I can't imagine what Abraham was going through in those moments. But in this stunning display of faith, he was determined to obey and to trust God. And there's clues in Genesis that even on that mountain, despite 
what would have been easily one of the most emotional times in Abraham's life, the most trying moments that he's ever experienced, Abraham felt assured that God would come through for him. And the bottom line of the story is that he trusted God's word. He trusted God's faithfulness. He trusted God's promise. Later in in the book of Hebrews, the author describes it like this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now we know the end of this story. We know that at the last moment, the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham, 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 don't, don't harm your son. God had seen the trust and the faith that Abraham had, and he provided a ram for the sacrifice instead. And, and there's so much that we could really unpack about this story, but the significant um, part to our passage in Hebrews this morning is, is what the angel of the Lord says in Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18. There the angel says this, By myself I have sworn, declares declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Here God is once again restating to Abraham his divine intention to fulfill his word, to fulfill his promise. But in Genesis 22, this passage that we just read, the author of Hebrews is pointing something out. That this promise, this time it has a little bit of an extra punch, a little bit of extra oomph, because it's not only a promise, it's an oath. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. That's what it says in Genesis 22. Now, this concept of taking oaths, it spans across many cultures, both ancient and modern. Um, It's a concept that's even familiar to us in modern times. This idea of swearing by someone greater than yourself, by something else, is to give an extra assurance of the veracity of the uh, statement or the commitment that's about to come after the oath is taken. Oaths are meant to be a guarantee of truth. Now, in many ways these days, most, most might consider oaths as just symbolic in nature, but we still practice them in various places, in various forms, and, and they, ha- they do have meaning. I mean, I can think of a few examples right off the top of my head. I'm sure you can, too. We see on TV court dramas, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Or, you know, just, just last week, um, President Joe Biden took the oath of office by putting his hand on, on a Bible. And then there's, for me, the last time I took an oath, um, and the one I take most seriously on on earth, was on New Year's Eve in 2018. Some of you were there when I took the oath. It went something like this. I, Dustin Aaron Martin, before God and in the presence of these witnesses, take you, Sharice Michaela Weaver, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health to love and to cherish until death do us part. This is my solemn vow. And before that night, I had made plenty of promises to Sharice, but there was something more significant about those vows, about that covenant that we were entering into. There was something deeper about that commitment. 
It was, in a sense, the culmination of my commitment to her. It was through these words that I said and that ring uh, that I gave her, I was, I was trying to give a guarantee that by the grace of God, I would follow all of my words with action. And notice in my vows there, I made them before God and in the presence of these witnesses. I swore by something outside of myself. I appealed to someone greater because my word, it's really not enough. My character is not spotless. I need greater accountability because of my imperfection. But this isn't the case with God. Like his word alone is enough. There's a rich tradition in scripture and in the Jewish faith of God's word being perfect and powerful in and of itself. What God says, he does. He speaks things into being. His character and his perfection, they stand for themselves. But he makes this promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. He makes it doubly sure by swearing it by himself. In Hebrews 6, uh, verses 16 to 17, we read this. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God didn't need to make this oath. Like, he didn't need to swear it, swear anything to Abraham. But to make it absolutely, unequivocally clear, the unalterable nature of his word, he swore by himself. Because there was no one greater for him to swear by. He is the sovereign over all creation, the very definition of perfection, of faithfulness and trustworthiness. And you know, our immediate question today might be, well, so what? Like God made this oath to some old dude in 2000 BC that he would give him a bunch of kids. Like what, on, what in the world does that have to do with me today? Well, let's read, let's read Hebrews 6 verse 17 again and then continue on into, into verse 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The author here is, is clearly implying that God's promise to Abraham, the unchangeable intention of his purpose, it has relevance to his audience in the first century, and it has relevance to all believers, really, anyone who's seeking refuge in the Lord. Because although Abraham was the immediate recipient of the promise uh, from God, this covenant, this promise for land, the promise for descendants, remember the last line of the promise. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This promise is understood to find its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who came from the line of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. That makes us the ultimate heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, of this ancient promise and oath. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, he puts it this way, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Yes, like Abraham's physical descendants did become as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. But we've seen that this promise is about 
so much more than just biological children and their offspring. It's about Abraham's spiritual children as well. Those who are blessed because of the faith and the patience that he demonstrated and blessed because of God's goodness and his absolute determination to fulfill his word. It's like that children's song, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. The point that the author is is making is that as surely as God was faithful to keep his promise to Abraham, so is he faithful to keep his promises to us. Because wrapped up in God's fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is the whole truth of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ was what God had in view when he said, in your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Like that was the intention from the moment he gave that promise. So when he made that oath to Abraham, he made that oath to everyone who would eventually trust in Jesus. And this means that all the implications of the gospel, they're guaranteed for us. Every promise to wipe your slate clean, to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Every promise to make things new, that no matter how bad things seem here on earth, there is a new earth coming, a new creation, a perfect one. And that for those who trust in Jesus here, this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. Every promise to sustain you, that those who mourn will be comforted, that he will provide a way out of temptation, that he knows what you need before you ask him. Every good intention of the Lord's heart, these things are guaranteed. All of his promises are yes and amen. Christ has already won the victory. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in him. And so we have, we have this hope, this assured expectation of something, because God is good to his word. Hebrews calls this hope that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in verse 19. And this hope that we have, it's not a, a wishy-washful, wishful thinking. It's, it provides firm security the way, that, um, the way that an anchor provides a ship stability and protection in a storm when feelings of desperation and fear are overwhelming or the way it provides stability for a ship even in the seemingly calm days when apathy might lead it to just kind of drift away. And so the admonishment, the application for all of this to the first century Christians and to us today is exactly what the the author wrote in verse 12 of of chapter 6. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Basically, remember Abraham? Abraham had faith. Abraham was patient. Be like Abraham. The encouragement is to cling to this anchor for the soul, the hope that God's promises are sure, just like Abraham did, because we know that in life, storms are inevitable, storms of all kinds, storms because of our sin, storms because of the sin of others, storms because we just live in a broken world. And these storms can cause desperation, a desperate longing for them to pass. I mean, think of the stories in the Bible where, you, where there was a storm and there was people caught on a boat. I mean, Jonah and the sailors that he was with, Paul and his companions at the end of Acts, the disciples in the Gospels, like everybody was desperate to make it all stop. 
And maybe there's many of us that are starting to feel a little bit of impatience, maybe even desperation for all of this pandemic stuff to pass, for things to go back to normal, for kids to be back in school, to not have our offices 10 feet from our bed, to be able to see our family and friends without feeling like we're breaking the law. And, you know, Abraham himself wasn't totally immune from this impatience either. His road to Genesis 22, it wasn't always smooth. At age 75, he bet everything on this promise that God would, would come through for him, that he would give him a land to possess, that he would make him a great nation, that he would give him a family. And 10 years later, he didn't have anything to show for it. At age 85, he still had no family. And we know that, that he and Sarah felt at least a little bit desperate. I mean, look what they did. They, they had Abraham, they kind of took things into their own hands and, and had Abraham go into Hagar to try to force God's hand in fulfilling the promise. But it wasn't time yet. And then ultimately remember that like in his lifetime, Abraham never actually saw the full fulfillment of the promises. He greeted these things from a distance, it says in Hebrews 11. And so it appears that Abraham had to learn this patience too. But by the later years of his life, he had clearly resolved to trust God completely, to anchor his hope in the Most High. And in the storms of life, whether they're COVID-related or they're related to something else, we might be tempted, like Abraham and Sarah were, to drop our anchor just about anywhere, desperately seeking for something to hold us. Do we rely on our finances to steady us? Do we try to find our security in the success of our kids, the success of our careers, the success of our relationships? These things might hold for a little while, but the only anchor that is guaranteed to hold is the one from chapter 6, verse 19, which goes behind the curtain, the author says. This is an image referring to the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple, representing the very presence of God. Our hope, our anchor, it's not tied to anything here on earth. It doesn't go to some rock on the bottom of the sea. No, our anchor goes heavenward, straight into the presence of God, where Christ has gone before us as the forerunner, as the pioneer, as the champion of our salvation, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 2. Faith in the assured promises of God, patience to see them fulfilled. These things, that hope, that anchor, is the only one that will hold us steady. And remember that, that this anchor doesn't, that anchors in general don't pretend that the storm isn't there. No, they work in the midst of them. These promises and this hope, it doesn't diminish difficulty pretending that it's not there, but it does defy despair. Knowing that God is true to his word gives us the strength to not only get, get over our trials in life, but to walk through them with resolve. This hope gives us the strength to, to stare storms straight in the face, name them for what they are, but say, I have something greater. I have something deeper. I have someone who is more powerful than the storm, who loves me completely, and who will always come through for me. I will have hope because of that. This storm will end. It may not end tomorrow. It may not end the next day, but it will end. This hope holds us steady and never lets us drown in despair because it says, take my life, take my health, take my job, take my wealth, take everything that's precious to me, but you can never take my Christ. And so you can never take my hope. 
1834, the English pastor um, Edward Mote wrote a hymn which is really well known to, to most of us, I'm sure. And I didn't realize it before this week, but when you slow down and you read the lyrics, uh, it's not hard to, to imagine what book of the Bible he was reading in his quiet time when he wrote these lyrics. And as I close this morning by, by reading the words of this hymn, keep the words of Hebrews 6 in mind as well. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen.